At the centre of the system of chattel slavery was the body. Not the mind, not the soul, but the physical vessel necessary to carry out back-breaking labour. And breakbacks it did. A deadly combination of punishing work, meagre food rations, scant clothing allowances and terrible living conditions saw millions of enslaved Africans meet an early grave. But what of those who didn't die, but also couldn't work to the degree demanded of them? What of those who were disabled, either from birth or throughout the course of their lives, in a way that prevented them from being able to do plantation work? Of those who managed to survive and age? What was their experience? And how did slavery, the world trade that sharpened definitions of a healthy body and ability on a scale never seen before, shape what we understand today to be disability. I'm Moya Lothi-McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. My name is Stephanie Hunt Kennedy, and I'm a historian of the Caribbean and the Atlantic world, as well as disability history. In two previous episodes of Human Resources, we've been exploring how the development of modern medicine entwines with the slave trade. Does disability history fit within that category as a discipline? Disability history in some ways emerged in response to medical history. When discussing disability, it's usually been about physicians' diagnoses of disabled people instead of centering disabled people themselves. So disability history kind of emerged as a kind of resistance to that kind of narrative, focusing instead on the lives of disabled folks and the kind of lived experience of disability. So instead of centering the physician, it centered the person, not just as a patient, but as a person. Disability history, it functions in the same way as the familiar triad of gender, class, and race, in the sense that historians kind of put on a disability lens to look at history. So they see things about the body and fitness, as well as competency, and kind of analyze history through that lens. So disability is historically specific. Certain things that were considered disability in the 17th century would be different than the contemporary period. So it has to be put into this very specific historical context. In the 1700s, what did conceptions of disability look like? How did people see disability? What, if anything, was viewed as disability? I imagine the range and scope of the word disability now is probably very different to what we're talking about back then. Disability among the enslaved had a big part in shaping British conceptions of not only race, but also disability. Ableism and racism kind of worked together in this time and they intersected. They were kind of a mutually constitutive force. And so you have ideas emerging in this time that they're intertwined. So for instance, British perceptions of Africans at the beginning of their exploration and the expansion of the slave trade were really tied up with pre-existing ideas of what we would now call disability, what they at the time called monstrosity or deformity. So the British called on these very old ideas of monstrosity and deformity in their explanations and their justifications for African enslavement. 
They argued that Africans were a monstrous race, particularly fit for enslavement. So there's this kind of argument from the British side that Africans were intellectually deficient, but somehow hyper fit for brute labor. So you see how these kind of ableist perceptions of the body intersect with a developing anti-Black racism. And so in this way, I think the two really work together with the emergence of modern understandings of both disability and race. Did the demand of industry growth have anything to do with how people were seen? We know with the slave trade, growth was rapid. Did this also impact the rate of discarding of people and the perceptions of what an able body was? There's an industrialization thesis that has kind of shaped a lot of conversations about disability in the 18th and 19th centuries. With industrialization, bodies that were prior to the industrialization, kind of still able to labor and still a part of the political economy, were all of a sudden kind of cast out of these labor positions because of the timekeeping that came with industrialization, the kind of fast-paced nature of industrial labor. But historians have really challenged that idea for a number of reasons. They've shown that, in fact, disabled folks did actually remain in industrial labor. So thinking about disability not just in the context of labor, right? That that's not always a clear fit. So it's not actually accurate to think that modern conceptions of disability were invented to mean workers unable to keep pace with strict timekeeping and expectations of them once industrialization was introduced. Enslaved people, of course, were doing industrial labor since the 17th century. So it's also a very kind of Western-centric, kind of whitewashed argument that with industrialization in Britain, all of a sudden we have the origins of modern disability. Because if we take that thesis and apply it to the Caribbean, we see that, in fact, enslaved laborers were doing this kind of sugar production was an industrial enterprise. And so in many ways, they were precociously modern. But as unfree laborers, they labored despite disability. So whereas in free wage labor, some people would have been cast out of that industrial environment, enslaved people continue to labor under the threat of violence until their bodies could no longer function. When we talk about disability in this particular historical period, that of enslavement in the 1700s, are we talking about the physically disabled only? Or did that concept encompass neurodivergency? What did it mean to be disabled if it wasn't concentrated on someone's ability to perform labor? Mostly to do with physical disabilities, but, you know, plantation records also give indications of people with what we would now call psychological disabilities listed as insane or intellectual disabilities often listed as like idiots. But again, in the context of slavery in the Caribbean, even those people were kind of utilized in any capacity that was possible. So they could carry water to the field laborers, work in the grass gang, which was like often consisted of young children as well as the very old. This kind of idea that disability has to do with one's ability to labor does not fit in the context of enslaved labor. The forced migration, the natal alienation, the separation of families, this is the loss that is at the heart of colonization, which also contributed to, you know, a kind of psychological violence. And we see these more invisible disabilities described in runaway advertisements with some runaways are described as having the attempts of suicide wounds on their bodies. What was the prevalence of what 
we'd now call disabilities within enslaved populations. I mean, that's really hard to quantify, but I can say with confidence that if we look at runaway advertisements, by the 18th century, slave owners had to put advertisements for their fugitive bonds people in the newspapers. They're kind of like wanted ads, essentially. So they describe the body as a way to identify and then apprehend the said fugitive. And they're very detailed descriptions of the physical body. And I studied many runaway ads in my book, about a thousand, and they're just riddled with disabilities as well as deformities. For instance, like enslaved people were really susceptible to getting the chiggers and it could often lead to deformed hands or feet. Other people are said to walk with limps. Other people are said to just, you know, have the marks of punishment, which isn't particularly a disability, but certainly a kind of mark of stigma. Run away from his master, Mr. James Knox, in Pelham Street on Friday morning last, a Negro East India boy named James Hamlet, about 16 or 17 years of age, about five foot two inches high, much pock fretted, in need, and limped a little with the right leg, was dressed in a dark, thick-set frock and waistcoat, brown cloth breeches, gold-laced hat, and curled hair too paid before. And as the said Negro boy is also charged with embezzling several sums of money, the property of his master, whoever will apprehend him and bring him before Sir John Fielding shall receive one guinea reward. So these ads are just like flooded with signs of disability and plantation records as well. So they list people in their employment. So first gang, second gang, third gang, which would be field labor, the great house, which would be domestic labor. And then there's always the category of superannuated, infirm, invalid. And every plantation record would have these categories. So sugar production in the Caribbean was particularly physically destructive so disabled bonds people were really an everyday part of the plantation life. They were an everyday part of this kind of environment. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories. And we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Chiggers, which Stephanie mentions, are a tiny type of mite endemic to the Americas. The bug would burrow into the skin via the feet and lay eggs. Although these sacs could be removed easily, if they weren't, they could cause uncomfortable itching and pain. And chigger bites were also a pathway for other infections, like tetanus, that resulted in soreness and, in some cases, lameness. 
lack of access to healthcare meant enslaved populations particularly suffered from chiggers. I want to know how these overt, racialized inequalities shaped understandings of disability within enslaved populations. For example, would a person without an arm, racialized as white, be treated as disabled, whereas an enslaved person with the same missing limb, who is racialized as black, see themselves considered differently? You certainly have this medical narrative. You know, you have certain kinds of diseases that are said to be racialized. For instance, like dirt eating was a common practice among the enslaved, but white people saw that as something essential to them, that this disorder was essential to being Black. But in fact, it was a sign of malnutrition, a kind of nutrient disorder. But then you also have enslaved people continued to labor despite impairments. So they would be in the field missing an arm. Under enslavement, these people continued to labor because they were unfree, because their bodies were owned by plantation authorities. And so they used them until they literally could not function anymore. So I will say in the Caribbean, there were compensation given to white people who came disabled, particularly There's a law that comes out in Jamaica in 1702 that says any white person who becomes disabled while hunting down a fugitive bonds person will be compensated. And this reveals a lot about the differences between white disability and black disability, particularly white free and black enslaved disability, because in this law, essentially colonists are treating that white person as though they are defending the colony. It's as if they are at war. So they've defended the colony and therefore we will compensate you. So it tells us a lot about the threat of runaways, but also the lengths to which colonists, the assemblies were willing to compensate white people for stopping the threat of runaway enslaved people. This is the thing I keep thinking about. Why would slave owners run their workforce into the ground to a degree that would disable their workers? That meant that both able-bodied people would become disabled, but also that disabled people would be completely spent. It's a real contradiction. Why would you treat enslaved people so poorly when your livelihood depends on their labour? I'll say that this kind of disabling process really begins at the moment of their capture. So although slave merchants and slave owners desired a fit enslaved person, every stage of enslavement served to undermine that fitness and served to debilitate the enslaved body, which seems like a huge contradiction. From slave law, in which Caribbean bonds people were subject to legally sanctioned punishments that could temporarily or permanently disable slave owners, Slave owners had an almost sovereign power to punish enslaved people privately on plantation grounds with impunity. And this led to a host of disabling punishments meted out onto enslaved people's bodies as well as their psychologies. What makes the Caribbean unique is that the slave population did not reproduce itself naturally. And part of this was because of this material depraved world. And it's also because Caribbean slave owners calculated that it was more efficient to work enslaved people to death and replace them with new laborers than to treat them better so that they might survive. Do we have any evidence of how disabled and wider slave populations viewed disability within their demographic? 
There's a plantation record in Barbados in the 18th century in which the plantation manager is giving his yearly report and he lists everyone in their labor positions. And then at the very end, he has this little blurb where he says, I'm paraphrasing, you know, as you'll see, everyone on the plantation has a job to do. Everyone is useful, except for those who are disabled or idle, who are not fit for labor, who get as much food and clothing as those who labor, but they do not contribute to plantation production. And then he says, I wish they would take themselves away like Becky did. And that's it. And so we don't know who Becky is or how she left, under what circumstances she left. Did she leave on her own volition? Did she leave because of the indignation from an unsatisfied manager? There's many questions that will always elude us, but it gives us an insight into how slave owners viewed disabled people, again, as this kind of burden on their finances because they were not contributing. I like to think that Becky left on her own volition, but then of course the question then is how did she survive in this incredibly racist, hostile world as a self-emancipated, disabled Black woman? How else do we see the enslaved navigate disability? There are other ways in which we see how enslaved people revalued their disability. They often did so in order to negotiate the terms of their bondage, as well as to evade capture if they had fled the plantation. So for instance, an enslaved person might feign a disability to be moved from field labor to a less physically taxing labor position. Another example is how enslaved people masqueraded disabilities or tried to pass as able-bodied when they went off the plantation. So runaway advertisements might say something like, you know, has the marks from the chiggers, but covers it with a handkerchief. And sometimes they say almost the reverse. They say pretends to be lame or pretends to be blind. And so we can see them using their disabilities or even just kind of feigning disability. And then of course, we also know that voodoo priests and priestesses and obia practitioners also value disability as a kind of spiritual gift. And I also think that there's multiple ways to look at the disabled enslaved body. Of course, on the one hand, it is a sign of slave owners' power over enslaved people. But the other way to look at it is as a sign of protest and personhood. So not just a sign of victimization, because many of these punishments, much of the violence that was inflicted onto enslaved people was done so as a form of punishment. You know, we can think of this as a kind of enslaved people resisting slave owner power and bearing the marks as kind of consequences. Do we see community care among the enslaved when it comes to disability? I often like to talk about Mary Prince when this question comes up. She was a a slave in Bermuda who wrote a narrative of the history of Mary Prince. And her narrative is really flooded with cases of enslaved people becoming disabled, and particularly disabled bonds people being treated by plantation authorities with a particularly cruel violence, perhaps even more violence than their able-bodied counterparts because they could not keep up with the kind of demands of sugar production or the rice ponds, etc. So she has a story, she talks about Daniel, this man who's disabled, quite old, and I think she says he was not quite right in the head as well, or maybe that's Sarah, she speaks of, of a few people, but she has this line where she says, in him we saw our own lot if we should live to be so old. So there's a sense that she and her other enslaved laborers recognize that they were all vulnerable to this kind of 
physical debilitation. And it gives us a sense that there wasn't this kind of animosity, but certainly plantation owners had this idea that able-bodied slaves were kind of irritated by disabled bonds people for getting the same kind of clothing and food. But when we look at stories like Mary Prince, we actually find that there seems to be an understanding that they were all susceptible to this. And of course, plantation records also show that there are people who cared for the disabled. There have been other historians, particularly in the States, where they have more access to more sources about slavery from the lived experience of enslaved people that have shown that there was a sense of kind of community building. For instance, mothers would likely not be separated from their children if they had a disabled child because the mothers were seen as the natural caregivers of those people. So in some ways, disability could actually keep families together in ways that, you know, their able-bodied people might not be. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. In him, we saw our own lot if we should live to be so old. Through Mary Prince's accounts, we understand a little more about how enslaved people thought and experienced aging. I wondered whether there are any links with our modern focus on youth and vitality. Aged people occupied this kind of interesting space on most British Caribbean plantations. They were often assigned positions for instance, of like taking care of the young or taking care of the disabled. Watchmen who were men who would watch the plantation grounds at night for quote unquote criminal behavior, runaways, etc. They were often older men and they often had sight impairments. 
which is just seems like such a contradiction by modern standards to give someone who had a sight impairment a job of watching the grounds. But again, this is kind of why we have to think about disability in very historical context. It's not something that's, it's not transhistorical. It's something that is historically produced. It's a social construction. Yes, it has to do with the materiality of the body, but it always has to be understood in these very specific historical contexts. Who had the responsibility for caring for the elderly and enslaved? Was it the British state or was it private plantation owners? Was this even a consideration at all? By the late 18th century, laws start coming out that essentially say to slave owners, it is your responsibility and not the state to take care of aged and disabled bonds people. Because there had been this custom up until this point, this practice among slave owners, where they would manumit or free aged and disabled people who no longer contributed to plantation production. They would free them as a cost control measure because they did not want the burden, quote unquote, burden of taking care of them, of providing them with sustenance. But this becomes an issue because then all these aged and disabled people flock to the cities and they become beggars. And there's a kind of an issue about idleness in the colonies. And so these laws come out and say, it's the owner's responsibility. So we can see from these laws that this had become an issue, right? That aged people, as well as disabled people, again, did not fit into the British and colonial understanding of black labor. Where does such a strong rejection of the care burden by the state come from? There's this question of, well, what do we do with these people? From the colonist standpoint, it's like, where do these people fit into our world, which is based on white freedom and black enslavement? And so Asian disabled bonds people challenge all of these ideas that the British have over equating blackness with labor. This is when, you know, by the time you get to the late 18th and 19th centuries, you have the many arms of the modern state arise, right? Hospitals and asylums and workhouses and even like, you know, missionary activity and education and all of these kinds of elements to the modern state are in many ways, they function under the guise of reform, but they're a kind of oppressive system that is really removing these people from public view. Even in the late 18th century, this was a concern in the Caribbean colonies, but it's also a concern in Britain too, the growing visibility of a particular kind of poverty people who were disabled and poor on the streets. So it's a reflection of a much wider kind of Atlantic world anxiety. And I think the other thing is that even after emancipation, Britain still conceived of Black citizenship as tied to labor. And so we have in the decades leading up to emancipation, this kind of concern among British colonists of what to do with the aged and disabled bonds people who don't fit into their idea of Black freedom, who won't be contributing to labor production. And so the legacy is this kind of notion that Black people are still particularly fit for certain forms of labor. There was a prevailing biologically essentialist view during enslavement that disability within the enslaved population was a natural continuation of that monstrosity Stephanie discussed earlier that was seen as something endemic to the black population. It wasn't seen as a product of the barbarous system and conditions they lived under or the lack of support they received for living with disability. 
How does that link to ideas today that have persisted about marginalised populations and the disproportionate risk they face from things like COVID-19 due to inequality? I mean, I think it's certainly fair to say that certain groups of people have been historically and even today exposed to particular forms of violence. And, you know, we live in a world that is very much shaped by the legacies of slavery. I think most recently where we see that is that if we take the states, for instance, when COVID first hit, you know, you have a disproportionate number of people of color dying from COVID due to their quote unquote underlying conditions, which is essentially racism. And even in the Caribbean, we see like this inequitable access to healthcare, even the prison industrial system, you know, it has a, again, in North America has a disproportionate number of people who are black as well as disabled. And so these things have shifted, it looks different, but in many ways, we're still living with the kind of racist and ableist elements that sprung from the institution of slavery. I want to explore how disability was used by abolitionist movements and how it might contribute to a more modern conception of disability, particularly that which is disability really paternalised and disabled people having their agency removed. It becomes one of their key arguments to elicit Christian sympathy from their white audiences. So they portray the enslaved person as this kind of broken, beaten, like supplicant bonds person in need of whites to kind of save them from slavery. So this is exemplified in the really famous Wedgwood Seal that I'm sure most of your listeners would be familiar with. The man on bended knee with his arms raised in, in supplication, am I not a man or a brother? So in this way, abolitionists really use disability as a way to appeal to British sympathies and this kind of growing charitable culture toward the disabled in metropolitan Britain. And the figure of the disabled bonds person was a particularly powerful propaganda strategy in the wake of the Haitian Revolution, which had created this fear among whites throughout the Atlantic world of revolutionary insurgency and emancipation. So they kind of feared this kind of figure that comes from the Haitian Revolution of this like armed black male revolutionary kind of anti-slavery rebel. And so abolitionists kind of respond to this by posing a very different figure, which is the figure of the disabled bonds person in need of white help to save them from the atrocities of slavery. And so these two images, you know, the kind of anti-slavery rebel exemplified by Toussaint Louverture and the disabled bonds person embodied different paths to freedom. The choice between revolutionary emancipation on the one hand, which was exemplified by the Haitian revolution and emancipation as a kind of process of imperial and legislative reform on the other. So what we see in abolitionist discourse is disability being used as a way of envisioning a black subject who in his or her freedom was not a physical threat to the British empire so representations of disability allowed for the possibility of incorporation of Black people into the British world while blunting its radical potential. So this is how we see disability functioning as a kind of discursive power, as this kind of powerful rhetorical device for abolitionists in support of, you know, kind of imperially legislated emancipation. How can we take from the legacy of slavery and disability an understanding of how an ableist world was formed? How do we challenge ableist thinking and structures by looking at slavery and the legacy that's left? 
I think an important part to take away from this is that Caribbean bonds people form a really integral part of wider disability histories. So they've often been kind of time frame of Western modernity, but in fact, they were essential to our ideas of labor, of disability, of modernity. And in terms of, you know, what we can do today, I mean, I think it's really important to, to talk about or to think about disability as a kind of lived experience, as opposed to just from a medical perspective, which often sees disabled folks as just their diagnoses. And this is a good way of thinking about disability and the way that ableism functions even today. So understanding that disability is a lived experience, that all bodies are good bodies, and that we really live in an ableist world. And so I think understanding that as a form of power can help us kind of divest that power. Disability, as a topic both present and historical, is as neglected as the study of enslaved people. Yet tireless work means the stories and perspectives that help us reevaluate these histories are coming to the fore. And in the next episode, we'll be examining another aspect of Britain's slaving past that may have snuck under the radar until recently. Did anyone say girl boss? Resources was written by me, Moya Lothi McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz. This is a Broccoli production, part of the Sony Podcast Network. <laughs>